This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to a special bonus episode on the DeFacto Leaders podcast feed. This week, I'm sharing an interview I did with another host on the Bee Podcast Network because I think it's something that you'll really enjoy. So like I said, the episode is going live in the DeFacto Leaders Podcast feed, but this was actually an episode on the Seeing to Lead podcast with Dr. Chris Jones, and this is the episode where I was a guest on his show. We are both members of the B Podcast Network, which is a podcast network with a ton of shows that relate to education leadership in some way. So there are topics surrounding specific teaching strategies, leadership and reform in education, as well as some other shows relating to parenting, entrepreneurship, corporate learning and development, communication, and a number of other topics 
that relate to K-12 education and supporting kids in K-12 education in some way. So to learn more about the network and all of the shows on it, go to bepodcastnetwork.com. Dr. Chris Jones has been an educator in Massachusetts for 22 years. His experience in the classroom ranged from 8th to 11th grade, working in an urban setting. A portion of this was spent opening a high school division for an expanding charter school. He's been a building administrator for 14 years. He's also the president of the Massachusetts State Administrators Association. And he is the author of Seeing to Lead, a book that provides strategies for how modern leaders can and must support, engage, and empower their teachers to elevate student success. He also vlogs weekly about continuous improvement and is the host of the Seeing to Lead podcast as a way to amplify teachers and other K-12 professionals' voices in an effort to improve education as a whole. In this interview, Dr. Jones and I discuss how school leaders and subject matter experts who are working directly with students can work together to support each other. And the reason that I love this topic so much is because there's a big emphasis on the idea that we need to embrace uncertainty to improve both personally and professionally. And while I agree with this, I think it's possible to take this idea too far. So for example, in the K-12 world, I've seen many talented therapists or teachers continue old habits and patterns they know aren't effective. And usually there are layers of guilt and shame around this because they know they could be doing something more or at the very least doing something different. Procrastination and not changing habits is often blamed on things like mindset or character flaws, but many times it's simply a lack of clarity. If you're wanting to solve a problem in a classroom, a therapy room, or a school, the steps can feel overwhelming and all-consuming. Sometimes the end goal and how to get there can feel fuzzy. When you have a challenging task in front of you, some element of anxiety and uncertainty is normal and part of the process. But if you have absolutely no clue where to start or where you're going, Being able to motivate yourself to move forward or do the work to change your habits is going to be extremely difficult. Imagine how you'd feel if you were stressed, frustrated, and nervous about something and you were told, this is going to be hard and uncomfortable. I have no idea how long it will take. I'm not sure where we're going and how we're going to get there. Few people would be excited to jump in and get started in that scenario, especially if they knew they'd be left to figure it out alone. This is where school leaders can step in and help teachers, therapists, and other staff to see the path forward or to put the support in place to make sure they get help along the way, whether it be access to resources, trainings, establishing operating procedures for collaboration, or time to meet and connect. So we might not be able to see the whole staircase clearly, but we can at least get an idea of what lies ahead and make the first steps feel less intimidating. And really, I think good leaders know how to do this for their staff. That's why I think this is a really important conversation that we continue to have. And I wanted to share it with you because I know that I have a lot of listeners who are involved in K-12 education in some way, whether they are in a role where they're working directly with students 
or whether they are leading a team of professionals who are supporting students. Before I get going, I wanted to talk a little bit about the School of Clinical Leadership. The School of Clinical Leadership is my program for related service providers that helps them to put executive functioning support in place on their school teams. Being able to address behavioral concerns in the classroom, students who struggle with work completion or staying on task, as well as students who struggle with generalization. So understanding how to take what they've learned in one setting and translate it to another setting and be able to problem solve on the spot or supporting students who struggle with relationships and social skills. All of these things can be tied back to executive functioning. And really we need to think about including the whole team in this process. But understanding how to put this support in place, understanding how to be a person who emerges as a leader on your team can be pretty overwhelming. It goes along with the theme of this conversation of needing a plan to know how to take those first steps and start to put that plan in place. And also supporting the other members on your team and helping them do the same. I think that related service providers are in a very unique position to make a huge difference in the lives of the students as well as the teachers supporting the students. Really, if you are in one of those roles, an SLP, a psychologist, a social worker, a counselor, or a special ed teacher or other interventionist, you can make a huge difference in being able to help teachers and provide those classroom-based supports that they need, as well as providing those supplemental interventions when students are pulled out of the classroom for specific therapeutic interventions. Really, we need to be able to tie those things together seamlessly, and that is no small task. That's why I give you a framework for doing this in the School of Clinical Leadership. And executive functioning skills are kind of like the glue that holds all of these things together. So to learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Chris Jones on the Seeing to Lead podcast. Have you ever run across a staircase where the first step was missing? And it completely changes your perspective about how you're going to climb those stairs. You have to take that second step first and stretch and maybe grab the railings and help pull yourself up. Or have you ever seen Kintsugi art? Pottery that's broken and then the cracks filled in with some other type of beautiful metal such as gold or silver. Hey everybody, Dr. Jones here with another episode of Seeing to Lead. And this week we hear from Karen Dudek Brannon. And I know you're wondering about that staircase and that Kintsugi comment, but the truth is they have a lot to do with what we talked about. You see, oftentimes we ask people to do things, but we don't offer the context or the systems to support them and help them be successful. And if they can't take that first step or see that first step, how can they ever see their way up that staircase. A lot of times people don't not move because they're unwilling, but because it's an issue of clarity. And when I talk about clarity, think about those cracks. Think about those cracks that are then filled with a beautiful metal that add to the artistry of whatever project you're working on. See, there are cracks in everything, natural cracks in everything. 
but it's the cracks that shine light in so that bigger issues, deeper issues, more important issues can be seen and properly addressed. One of the important themes that come out of the discussion between Karen and I is that success is built on a series of smaller wins. And in the end, people need to know the systems and the processes to get those smaller wins so that they can move forward in a successful way. All this without even mentioning the conversation between automatic skills versus learned strategies. Look, this conversation is rich. It's full of tips and strategies as we move forward trying to support, engage, and empower those around us. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Karen Dudek Brannon on Seeing to Lead. That helps them to just see a little bit of where they're going, see some kind of a micro yes or micro commitment, and get to that next step, experience some success so that they can, in their mind, feel themselves being successful, get a little bit more of a vision and a feeling for where they're going, because that's going to make them continue. Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Dr. Karen Dudek Brannon is the founder of Dr. Karen LLC, a company focused on empowering educators to support language, literacy, executive functioning, cognitive wellness. She currently offers professional development focused on helping K-12 teams develop programs and services that support students in the areas of leadership, language, literacy, and executive functioning. Dr. Karen is a licensed SLP and has a doctorate in special education, a special education director license, and an assistive technology graduate certificate. She spent 14 years in the school systems before starting her online education company in 2015. She's currently the host of the De Facto Leaders podcast. And I'm super excited to talk to Karen today because she has a ton of information she's going to be able to offer the listeners on how we support students and teachers and supporting those students in all aspects of their educational journey. So welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So, you know, in, you hit all those words in the, in the bio that I just went over about leadership and literacy and how all students need support. And you were doing that before the educational setting, then you moved to online. So could you fill the listeners in a little bit on, on that journey and, and why the move? Yeah. So there's so much to this. And it's funny because I was actually, I commented on one of Ross's posts the other day on LinkedIn, who's also at our network, something about your career path. And what I said was that I think that you don't always know which direction you're going. And a lot of times that changes every couple of years. So I found that to be very true as well, that um, when I first interviewed for my position as an SLP, that first position I had, they asked the question of where do you see yourself in five years? And it was just funny because 
it never occurred to me at that point in at in my career, you know, that you do want to be considering what you're doing in five years. You think I'm trying to get this job right now, and a lot of times you're not really thinking beyond that. And so, I've learned to do that, and I've learned that that's normal. But I did start off for. 14 years working as a school SLP. Originally, I wanted to work in a medical setting. I did not think that I wanted to work in the schools, but for SLP positions, you do have to do a clinical fellowship where you're supervised by another clinician for nine months. And then you're fully licensed after that if you complete that successfully. And it is a lot harder to find that in a medical setting and it's easier to find that in a school. And there were a lot of school openings at the time. It was it was November so middle of the school year, and they still had an opening at the school that I ended up at. So I did that for 14 years, always kind of knew that I wanted to do my doctorate. So I started that about six months after I started that school position. So I was getting my doctorate in special ed, getting the director of special ed credential. And really, I, when I first started off that program, did not think that I wanted to be in any type of leadership position. I thought that I would just do higher ed. And that's why I wanted to get the doctorate. But the director of special ed program overlaps with the special ed doctorate. And when I started to get into some of those programs and some of those courses, I actually really liked it. I remember one of the turning points where I knew that I really was interested in leadership was in my program evaluation course. And I actually messaged you about this the other day. My The person who was teaching that course ended up being my dissertation chair. And she was the one, because we were doing program evaluation, you're thinking about all the different personalities on the team that you're working with in the school. You are thinking about all the programs that you're doing in the school and where they're working, where they're not working. And she said, this is all about finding the cracks. And that's where she gave that Leonard Cohen quote where it's, I forget which song it's from, but it's, there's a crack in everything, but the cracks shine the light in. So she said, when you're doing a program evaluation, you're always finding the cracks. And so I always really loved that. And I have applied that to a lot of areas of my work since then. But yes, back to my career journey. So that was the point where I did know that I wanted to do leadership. And so when I finished my program in 2014, I was looking at either special ed coordinator. I really wanted to be a director, but a lot of times they want you to be a coordinator first. So I was looking at special ed coordinator positions. I was also looking at doing higher ed. But unlike speech pathology positions, where there's a lot more of them, they see I'm a speech pathologist and they're like, oh, we need an SLP, come over here. School administrator positions and higher ed positions are a lot more competitive. There's a lot more qualified candidates. And a lot of times you have to relocate. That at the time I had, you know, a school-aged child did not want to relocate. So I had to get creative with what I wanted to do for my work. And I have referred to this almost as micro experiments where I didn't really know I was doing it at the time. But throughout that whole 14-year period, I was doing little test runs. So I was an SLP. I was also, I did some adjunct assignments to see how I would like college teaching I did another adjunct assignment where I was the the person at the university that supervises the student teachers. So I gave them a grade for their class. But I was the person who was kind of the go-to person at the university between the student teaching on-site person and the university. So I did that. So that was, you know, a position where I was mentoring teachers. I, let's see, did some private clients on the side to see would I be interested in starting a private practice. I also... 
Let's see, what else did I do? I also did a lot of little mini leadership projects in my job as an SLP that kind of went above and beyond what I was technically in my job description. So what that allowed me to do is have this portfolio of experiences to figure out, do I even like doing this? So uh, I really did like teaching. I liked building courses. And I liked, I had a lot of information that I wanted to share with people. And I wanted to do something that had to do with leading and mentoring others. And I also wanted to do something that had to do with teaching and creating products. And so there's a number of ways you can do that as an employed person, but a lot of those didn't really make sense for me at the time. So that's why I started making my own courses. And that took off before the job search took off. So I decided to focus on that and my SLP job. And I gradually built that up. So you started that in 2015. And then in 2018 is when I left the schools. So I've been doing that full time since then. And I, it's, you know, not one of those things where I think I'll be doing this full time forever. I do want to go back and work as a team. But again, that's what made sense for me at the time. I think there's all these different stages of your career. And so some of the things that I encourage people to do when I'm working with them is just that idea of micro experiments and not necessarily seeing yourself as this is what I'm doing now, but this is what I'm doing for my entire career. Because a lot of times you have no idea where you're going to go. I, if you would have told me that I would be doing this 20 years ago, I never like it, it wasn't even an idea that I knew was a thing that you could do. So so yeah, um, it's definitely been a windy journey. I'm not really sure what I'm going to be doing in five years. You know, probably not this, but something like it, I hope. You know, what's interesting, and thank you for sharing that. That's, you know, that's, that's a pretty good thing to say out loud that you weren't even sure of where the journey was ending. Yeah. But you just kept going with what your interests seemed to be and, and where those opportunities yeah. presented themselves. Oftentimes, as leaders, we talk to students, we talk to teachers. And we hope to have them see a path or a destination at the end of that path that they're working towards. How do we get them to keep an open mind enough that they can have all these choices and that they just need to work towards what works best for them at the time while being flexible enough to continually improve themselves? Do you have any thoughts around that? Oh, yeah, there's so many things. So here's something really interesting that I heard Jerry Seinfeld say one time. He was on the Tim Ferriss show, actually. They were having this conversation about his creative process. So I thought this was really insightful because I've worked with a lot of mindset coaches and I have really struggled with a lot of their methods. And I think there's this whole idea of the embrace discomfort and leap in the net will appear. And what's Everything that you want is on the other side of fear or whatever things that people say. And all of that's true. You absolutely have to push through your comfort zone. But when we're thinking about, and especially when I think about my work with students who need support with executive functioning, if you can't see the whole staircase, it is hard to take that first step. So... If a person is having a hard time visualizing themselves being successful with something else that they don't know where they're going, a lot of times they can get stuck in avoidance and then that creates more anxiety. And then they are even more likely to retreat into their old habits and patterns. So I think if you're leading someone in any way, whether it be a teacher or a student, you do have to give them 
something to work with where they can take that first step in a way that feels manageable to them, that helps them to just see a little bit of where they're going, see some kind of a micro yes or micro commitment and get to that next step, experience some success so that they can, in their mind, feel themselves being successful, get a little bit more of a vision and a feeling for where they're going, because that's going to make them continue. If it's so overwhelming that they feel like they're never going to be successful, then they're not going to start. One example recently in my experience is just the whole idea of networking. And this is something that I work on with with some of the teachers that I work with because a lot of them are struggling to, you know, they, they don't like the way something's happening in their building. And they say, I want input from my administrator. I want my administrator to listen to me. And I'll say, okay, you know, is it, do they really, when they're saying this is the way that we do it, is that really the way that it has to be? Or would they be open to your input? Did you do something? Did you try to, you know, give your suggestions or anything like that. And a lot of times it's, well, I said something and nothing happened. And so the whole idea of, you know, building relationships. And then with kids, a lot of times it's, there. you can apply that same concept to just making friends or building relationships with people. So I think with something like that, it does feel kind of scary and uncomfortable and it is kind of a long haul. But when you have some kind of a process that you can just do or where you have some tangible steps that you can do that can just get you to that next conversation or get you to that next step and you do feel a little bit more confident, that is where I think you can start to get those small wins and you can kind of start to see that it's possible for yourself. And going back to the thing that Jerry Seinfeld said is that He said, when you are asking someone to do something that feels really hard and scary, your whole answer is just, I can't tell you when it's going to be over. I can't tell you how long it's going to take or what steps that you need to take to get there. And it's just, this thing is going to be hard and painful and uncomfortable for an unspecified amount of time. What rational person would be like, okay, I'm just going to go do that. (laughs) So you almost have to just, break it down for them and chunk it for them and say, okay, here's where, I mean, I guess sometimes you might say, here's a general length of time for how long this will take, but let's just focus on this thing that's going to be about this long and this is what you have to do to get there. I mean, and I find myself all the time, again, like when I've struggled with coaches, I'm like, wow, maybe they weren't that good of a coach because they were just like, again, lean, but the net will appear. And it's like... It's not very effective, actually. (laughs) I mean, that makes so much sense about making something incredibly scary or the lack of information making it scary than expecting people to act. But it, it, it does highlight the idea of relationships and how important it is for leaders to know who exactly they're leading. Yeah. Which then circles me back to what you said about finding the cracks Mm -hmm. in programming. Mm -hmm. It's almost like finding the cracks or building that framework for people, you want somebody to do this task that's difficult. And so you need, before you get them to do it, you need to lay out a framework for them and find the cracks in how they relate to that framework. In the book I wrote, I talked about working with people to draw a map and then building bridges to get from where they are, defining what they're missing and getting them a bridge to get from where they are to where they want to be. That sounds exactly what you were talking about with filling in the cracks. Yeah. So 
my question is, how do we do that with people? Because we know we need to, we know we need to work on that. And something that you talked about, we had spoken earlier was the idea of needing to plan for service delivery, not plan for therapy, which at, at the risk of misinterpreting what you mean by that, service delivery seems proactive to me. Yeah. And then the therapy piece seems reactive. So how do leaders work with people to be proactive and address issues that come up before they come up so that they're not picking up the damage afterwards or the pieces afterwards? Yeah, so the concept of service delivery versus planning for service delivery versus planning for therapy can certainly be both of those things can be both proactive and reactive depending on how they're applied. So when I'm talking about service delivery, I'm talking about big picture, all of the different activities that are happening in the way that you're providing services and the way that you're just the activities that you're doing at work in order to make sure that your students are getting the support that they need. And therapy is just one type of service delivery. So when I'm saying service delivery, there's a lot of different ways that when we're actually, if you're talking about this within the context of special ed, there's a lot of different ways that you can provide services for students. Even just getting down to the minutia of the types of services that would be listed on an IEP. So for example, a therapist who has specialized expertise in something can consult with a teacher to figure out what's going on in the classroom and then to just give some advice about some things they can do. They can also do a little bit more, I would say coaching, which I think there's a difference between consulting and coaching. Consulting to me is a little bit more of a, I'm just more of a conversation where coaching to me is a little bit more high touch in depth type of a thing, more of a mentorship relationship. So that's another model that you can use. There's also collaborative. A lot of times we use the term push-in services where there's a service provider who's going in the classroom and there's so many different ways that can look. So that can look like them floating around and providing support for students. That could look like two professionals doing a lesson together. That could look like center teaching, like where there's different stations. So there's a lot of different ways I can look. That's another type of service delivery. There's, and this kind of overlaps with the coaching and consulting, there's training. So a person who has an area of expertise can train people to do some types of thing in their classroom. And again, that is proactive if you think about it, because that can both provide supports for students that you know, it could benefit the whole class, but it also could be something that certain students absolutely need in order to access the curriculum. So in a way, that's something that could be proactive or reactive, depending on how you look at it. And then, of course, you have therapy where a student is pulled out. It could be more of a resource setting, which, again, that's more of a small group classroom service where they're getting their services or getting their instruction in a separate setting. Or there could be a therapy setting where it's a small group or one-on-one a type of a situation. So a lot of times when we think, um, and this is from the perspective of the related service providers, it does vary depending on the role, whether you're the psychologist, counselor, social worker, speech pathologist, occupational therapist, whatever type of therapist you are, a lot of times they're trained in 
the more of a medical model where it's kind of an outpatient thing. You you come to therapy and you go and you do this work with a therapist and then you leave and you go home and or you go do the rest of the things that you're going to do. And so a lot of times that's the model, the service delivery model that we default to when we think about planning services. And that can be very effective for certain things. There's a lot of times where with my specific discipline of speech pathology, there's this big, there was a while back when I was I'm trying to think of what time period it was, but, you know, inclusion was the big push. It was like, oh, we're going to do inclusion. That's what we're about, which is great. But really, it shouldn't be about inclusion. It should be about a least restrictive environment. And if inclusion is the least restrictive environment for certain students, then that's what we should do. If that's necessary in order for students to be successful, that's what we should do. But sometimes pulling them out is the least restrictive environment. And that's the way that they're actually going to get the intensity that they need. So when I say all of this, it's not that I'm saying that a therapy model isn't effective. It's very effective and sometimes more effective than those other things that I mentioned, or at least a necessary piece that needs to go with those things in order for the student to be successful. But what I encourage people to do is think about all those other things, because a lot of times from the therapist standpoint, they're saying, Number one, I don't feel valued. I feel siloed off. I feel like I'm by myself here trying to make a difference and I don't have any access or time to talk to my other team members. I feel like nobody understands what I do and I don't feel understood. I don't get input. I'm left out of meetings, all of those things. And then they're saying, I have all these students on my caseload and I feel like my services are just a drop in the bucket. I'm not making any difference. And then they don't feel engaged and they don't feel motivated to go to work because again, kind of going back to the Jerry Seinfeld thing, like you're doing this really hard thing and you feel like you're not making any progress. Where's the motivation to keep at it and keep doing your best work when you feel like you're not making a difference? And so that generalization piece where feeling like what I'm doing matters, what I'm doing makes a difference and I'm going to teach these students these skills and I might be just a small piece of the puzzle here as the therapist, but if I know that I'm going to go let them, you know, leave my therapy room into this ecosystem where they have all this other support built in that's going to support what I'm doing, then it's easier to feel a lot more engaged and feel better about your work. And so what I encourage people to do, uh, a lot of them are in that therapy role and it's very easy for them to get very, you know, thinking what am I doing when I have kids in front of me? Because that's just where their attention is. Shift them to thinking about those other models of service delivery and figure out how to make time because that is proactive for the students, but also for you. Because what that does is that it could make make those things that you're doing in therapy way more effective. It could also take certain things off your plate. If you know that certain people outside of your room are addressing things, that could be fewer things that you have to do in therapy. So maybe you can really hone in on a couple of things and make a huge impact instead of feeling like you're spread thin. So when I'm talking about shifting from service delivery versus just planning for therapy, again, I'm talking about big picture, the entire program. Like what's the whole programming look like for your students or for your caseload versus just what's this one little siloed off piece look like? So yeah, I, I guess like how you said it, and it is... That is an accurate way of looking at it because when you start to do this, I think a lot of times people, the motivation for them to do this is more reactive. Like I have all these students on my caseload and I need to help them yesterday. But what 
when people start to do this, it does end up being more proactive because they realize it doesn't just help the students on their caseload. It can help the entire student body as well. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. So just to make sure that I'm getting this clear, and I just want to repeat this back real quick for the listeners, because what you said, I think so important what you said, and I just want to make sure I pull out and highlight the nugget that I think came out of that. Because it's about people and it's about supporting people and making them feel valued in what they do and making what they do seem valued or as valued as it is. So you're talking about you can support these individuals and support this whole process by building teams in a very visible public way that shows how all the pieces fit together because it is a puzzle that you work in with these students. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's really important for all the people who are the pieces of that puzzle to see the whole thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, you as I think as the administrator and the leader are thinking like that. But I think that from a an engagement standpoint, it's really important for everybody else to see that as well. That wraps up the support, engagement, and even the empowerment piece, I believe, because once you show people the whole picture where they fit the puzzle, I've always found it amazing how quickly that mindset changes because sometimes the mindset is an issue in these areas, but how quickly that mindset changes to almost a systems thinking. So when you have the individual providers seeing what the big picture is, giving them space time with the idea of how valued their individual piece is, they tend to start to work together and come up with better ideas to deliver better services Mm -hmm. for the students. And then obviously that piece of empowerment, it engages them and makes them feel even more valued. But then even outside of those services and those service deliveries, your general ed classroom teacher, all your general ed classroom teachers that interact, it starts to show the importance of what's happening for these students, the necessity of it, and how to make it occur better and more frequently. Absolutely. And the general education teacher, like, I think they're, I consider them to be part of this too. I mean, they're the person who has these students the most. And if anything, when I am talking to the related service providers, you know, if they had to go and pick one area and one, I would, I don't want to say discipline because there's so many different content areas, but if they had to pick one thing to focus on, I would say focus on the general education teacher and focus on helping them be better supported 
Not that the other related service provider roles aren't important, but that's a way that that their role can be seen as important. If you have those relationships with the general education teachers and you know what's going on in the classrooms and you know what kind of support they need, that's where you can have a really good partnership there and do what you were saying where all the people who just fill this whole puzzle start working together and come up with really good solutions. And it comes down to time, right? It comes down to where they can work together and how you can creatively get time for them to work together. And at least where I'm coming from or what I think about is the idea of clear understanding of tier one interventions by the general education teacher. Mm-hmm. Because then, I mean, once that occurs and once there's there's coordination and cooperation around those, the services provider's role becomes even clearer and more important, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I that was when I was doing both my work in the schools because I was on the problem-solving team that got all the academic referrals. So I had to figure out, you know, the team that was responsible for figuring out, okay, this student is not making progress in tier one. What does tier two look like? When do we need to consider tier three? And obviously that's when I would get involved more directly with evaluating along with the other IEP team members. But that's why a lot of my work when I was doing my doctorate at the same time, it really wasn't just focused on tier three, even though that's where I was physically delivering the interventions. My work and my impact thinking about those other service delivery models had to extend to tier one because you can't just focus on the tier two, tier three. And that was a big insight for me going from the medical model, the you just pull kids out and you do therapy to you're a part of this school team. So that was a big shift for me. It is something where I am, I'm glad that I decided to do special ed instead of doing communication sciences and disorders, not that wouldn't have been amazing in so many other ways as well. But the benefit of doing special ed was that it really helped me to focus more on, you know, supporting that role within the school team and seeing how it could impact all those different tiers. Because because again, when you're thinking about service delivery, that's that has to be at tier one as well yeah. for the whole concept of universal design and supporting everyone. No, absolutely. Is there something, because I had mentioned a mindset earlier, and oftentimes in schools, there is that other side of just not seeing some of these students' needs for what they are, mm-hmm. or just oversimplifying to them, you know, to the point of why can't they do this, or ending them off to a special ed, a special ed liaison or service provider and saying, you fix it type deal. Yeah. That happens. And that's a mindset. How do we address that? So there are a lot of different ways that can manifest. I have seen that, as you said, where there's some people where it's just, you know, get them out of my classroom. And obviously that's problematic. That I think that really highlights the need for there to be that strong relationship and where there to be that those flexible or varying service delivery models, because that's really an important opportunity or a, you know, again, a teachable moment for the person who's getting that referral to do some consulting and training. And obviously you have to do it diplomatically. But I think what I usually encourage people to do if they're in the position of the person receiving the referral, just really understand deeply what that person thinks is important and what they're struggling with. And a lot of times, if you can start to provide 
that support or at least show how what you can do is going to address the things that are important to them, you can start to make a little bit of headway for them to be open to doing things differently in their classroom. One of the things that comes up specifically, so if you're talking about a lot of the students that I might get on my caseload, there are the more academic things. So there could be, they're not making progress in reading or academics. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times math is impacted as well. But a lot of times it can be some of those other type of behaviors where they're not keeping up, they're not following directions, they're refusing work, their desk is a mess and there's papers everywhere and they're off, off task. They're blurting out in class and they're impulsive. And, and so a lot of times it's seen as a behavior problem. And it's, I would say that is kind of an oversimplified way of explaining it because there's so many different things that could be under that behavior where I like to parse things out is that if there is an issue with, with language processing or executive functioning, many times things that are just implicitly learned that we just do internally. So just our internal dialogue, the way that we plan, the way that we talk to ourselves in our heads to think, okay, what am I doing? Where am I going? So those things where you're, you're talking to yourself to plan in advance and you're, you're thinking about what steps you're doing. And then while you're doing those steps, you're kind of looking around to see like, am I on track? Um, what was my end goal? Where am I going? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Is, is the plan that I came up with the right thing that I should be doing? I know that, you know, it's, it sounds pretty complex, but you do that when you get up in the morning to brush your teeth and you do it without thinking. And so there's a lot of times where there's these skills. And if you have a child who has a developing brain, who also might have, you know, let's say they have ADHD or autism or dyslexia or some other type of disability that's impacting their brain, those things that just seem like automatic processes to you that just seem like they're not skills, are actually skills. And so I think that a lot of times in those situations, you do have to use the staircase concept of giving the teacher something that's going to see that, help them see some kind of tangible result to know that you're on the right track to just kind of get them in the door. So so that's, that is an opportunity to do that. If you can give them some type of strategy to just see those connections, to see that, this isn't just a child who's lazy. This isn't just someone who is a behavior problem. There could be something else going on here. And if that's the case, then yes, I mean, there might be times when it might be appropriate for them to get services or get pulled out of the room. But in order for those services to be successful, you have to also be doing things in your room if you want them to be successful, you know, when they are pulled out. And, you know, I always say that with, with parents as well, with there's a lot of people who are in private practice who do end up doing more of a, they, they end up doing an outpatient type of a setup because they're, you go to their clinic or their office and you get your services. But a lot of them with this type of coaching will, if they're doing it right, include parent coaching because they'll say, you know, a lot of everything that I'm doing in here is not going to be effective if you don't change the way that you're handling your home environment. And you can say the same thing at school. Some people only do the parent coaching or only do the teacher coaching. Sometimes that's the first step. And then maybe the therapy is needed, maybe it's not. So that does need to be the first step. I usually encourage people to try to get that, again, the micro step, the micro win, 
The other thing that I encourage people to do proactively, which if you have a teacher who's coming to you with a referral, a lot of times it feels like too little, too late. But if I have a therapist who is like, you know what, I want to get some tier one supports in place. I want my teachers to understand about executive functioning and self-regulation and, you know, building resilience and all of these things. And I know that it's going to make an impact on a lot of what the teachers are are working with in their classrooms. That can feel very overwhelming. So what I encourage them to do is that I'm like, who are the teachers that you already have a relationship with that are already open to trying your ideas? Start with them. And they're going to talk to each other. If one teacher sees another teacher doing, you know, you're coming into their classroom and you're helping them, then that's really good PR for you. You know, get start with those people who are the low hanging fruit. And that's more proactive. So I usually encourage them to do both of those things. You know, the, okay, somebody's coming to me with a referral and what can I do in the meantime while I'm trying to, you know, be a member of this team and be seen as somebody who's valuable. No, that's that's fantastic advice. I, I love how you circle it back around to that first that first step and how important that is to be a small first step. Yeah. So they don't get overwhelmed and they can start to see the path ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, you've said a lot about a lot of things and we're getting near the end of the podcast, but there's two things I ask everybody that comes on here. Two final questions, as it were. The first one is, if you were in education, who, not what would you be? So I thought about this question in advance. I knew it was coming. And (laughs) I would say that I, my, when I call myself is ever evolving. You know, sometimes, you know, even if you looked at my LinkedIn profile, my job title changes all the time because it depends what I'm working on. So, you know, it's speech pathologist or special ed leader or CEO or business owner, operator, product manager, all of those things. If I think about my personal life, you know, it's runner, wife, you know, all. I would say that no matter what, you, how I label myself, I think that how, what's that? You can, what was, what's the phrase that, how did I want to say this? Like, you can take a teacher out of a school, but you can't, wait, okay, now, now see now, I'm going to mess up the quote. You know where I'm going with that though? Yeah. The teaching is always going to come with the being an educator and being involved in education in some way is always going to be layered into what I do. You know, if I'm going to, say, you know, I'm a runner, I can go and be, sign up for a group in my area and be a mentor, like a group leader, and then I'm still teaching. So even if I'm doing those other things, I'm always still being a teacher. I can go, one of my dream projects is I want to write a book. I also would love to do some kind of a short series, like Sold a Story or one of those, you know, one of those short journalism pieces. I'd love to do that. But honestly, I would still be a teacher while I'm doing that. So yeah, it's going to come with me no matter what my label is or how I define myself. No, that's perfect. And I'm trying to think of that quote because I've heard it before. And well, it's, it's usually... like, you can take the girl out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the girl or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's where I was going with that. And I should have rehearsed that's, it better. That... You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we don't believe in rehearsing here. Yeah, we know what you say. We know what you say. So the final piece of advice from you, what's the most important piece of advice you would give to leaders as they work to better support, engage, and empower those they serve? So I was thinking about this, and I'm we're probably going to get into this when you're on my podcast, but I think that 
it's good to get the big vision. I think that a lot of leaders are really good at talking about that, but sometimes that can feel very nebulous to people who are really in the thick of it. So I think from a practical standpoint that people in education really need that whole concept of systems and operating procedures. It doesn't sound sexy, but I think it's really what they need in order to get those micro wins. Like if you have this whole team of professionals and they have no idea how to make time to talk to each other, to do all of those things that I talked about today, they're never going to do it. So I think that just applying that concept of creating your systems and your operating procedures and being really efficient with how you spend your time. Because I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, if I'm going to collaborate, that means I have to have a ton of meetings. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's a way that you can transfer your skills through other assets, training materials, different communication tools. So using that concept, something that teachers and educators, therapists, sometimes intuitively figure out just because they have to, but they don't get that training. That's more executive coaching, business training, operating procedures. That might be something that's involved in training for school leaders. And if we want teachers and therapists to be leaders in their current positions, they need to know how to do those things too. And I think that's going to help them be more successful because I think that many times they can make a bigger impact. They just don't necessarily have those tools and those skills and they need that nudge. They need someone who's been there and walked that path before them to show them what the next step is because they're just, it's overwhelming for you to take the time to try to figure that out. So I think that's something where we could make a big impact. Awesome. And I have to give you, I have to give you a plug or your show a plug, de facto leadership, your podcast. People <laughs> okay. really want to listen to that because those are the kind of things you talk about yeah. um, and have people talk about. So that's a must listen for anybody tuning into this. It's another show that helps people realize that leadership is much more than a title. You don't have to be in a specific position to be considered a leader or to be an effective leader. Absolutely. So look, you've said a lot today on the show. I'm sure some people might want to follow up with you. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Okay, so let me go through all my places. Here, here Connect we with go. me on LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn. Just search my name, Karen Dudek Brandon. And again, like I said, I have so many different job titles. Sometimes it'll be speech pathologist. I think right now it's marketing specialist. So anyways, I'm on there. So definitely connect with me on there. Send me a message. And then you can find my podcast, De Facto Leaders on all of the directories. And then all of the episodes are published on my website at drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash blog. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And I'll put all those links in the show notes so that people can grab them there as well. Okay. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I appreciate you having me on. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show leaving an honest rating and review, 
and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com, where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all the places you can go to learn about the Seeing to Lead podcast and to learn where you can connect with Dr. Chris Jones. And also, if you are a related service provider and you want to learn how to put executive functioning support in place so that you can support students' emotional, behavioral, academic, and social skills, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash clinical leadership. It helps me so much if you leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, or if you're interested in being a guest on the DeFacto Leaders podcast, please email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.